Legal Faceoff on WGNRadio.com is brought to you by McCorkle Litigation Services, leaders in court reporting and legal technology. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the High Energy Legal Podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into another edition of Legal Face Off on WGN. As always, joined by Rich Lenkoff of Downey and Lenkoff and Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. First up today. Thank you for joining us, Professor Catherine Ross at George Washington University School of Law, here to talk about the former president and a fraud ruling and how this could really impact his financial empire. Thanks again, Professor. Thank you for inviting me. Why don't we jump right into the breaking news, Professor, because as we talked a little bit off camera, uh, it looks like uh, the former president has filed an appeal on the gag order that was imposed uh, in his New York case. Of course, he's been all over uh, not just social media, but actual, real, old-school media standing there in court all week uh, criticizing the judge. And in particular, which was of, of great interest per, uh, to the judge that resulted in the gag order, he has been critical of the judge's clerk to the extent of calling her um, an accomplice, uh, accusing her of you know talking in the judge's ear the entire time. He also referenced a picture, allegedly, of this clerk with Charles Schumer, the New York uh, senator, and accused them of having a romantic relationship. Uh, this picture, I guess, emanated from somewhere in the dark, deep, uh, deep web. But um, what do you make of the gag order that was imposed? And of course, it's not surprising, I think, that Trump filed an appeal of that ruling. Yeah, this was the big surprise yesterday, which was supposed to be a fairly placid day with an accountant testifying. And many of the commentators were saying sort of ho-hum, this will be boring. You know, who's going to listen to this? And instead, uh, Trump tweeted, uh, or I'm sorry, not tweeted. He was on his own uh, social network. Um, and then he went out on the courthouse steps and made additional comments during the lunch break. And this came to the judge's attention. Before that, he had already made highly critical and inflammatory comments, and I would say even threats to the presiding judge in this courtroom, saying he should be, you know, stripped of his judgeship and prosecuted, who knows what for. Um, he had attacked the New York State Attorney General, much as he has attacked uh, Fannie Willis and uh, other judges. And um, now he, as you said, implied strongly or perhaps more than that, that there was this sexual affair between the clerk and Senator Schumer. The picture was not from the dark web. It appears to be a real picture, like tens of thousands of people have had their pictures taken with Chuck Schumer in the many, many years that he has served the state of New York in public office. So you take something out of context. They have a photo op. And he just makes stuff up about it. But he also said she would that she was whispering in the judge's ear because she was running the trial, because she was running the trial, which is an attack both on um, the judge and the clerk. He called her Schumer's girlfriend. How disgraceful 
the case should be dismissed immediately. So when they got back from lunch, the judge called uh, the parties into chambers and he told Trump, you have to take this down immediately. And in public hearing, he said, you cannot attack my staff. I will not tolerate that. He didn't say anything about the attacks on himself as judge or the attacks on the New York attorney general. And Trump did take it down. But we all know that once something is out on social media, it is out and it can never be constrained or retracted. And so the judge said, you may consider this a gag order and a violation will be met with swift, meaningful sanctions. So he has taken the most dramatic step of any of the judges presiding over the Trump cases so far. It remains to see how long Trump can control himself. So, Professor, the underlying case here is one where three days in, he's already been found guilty of fraud. Um, there are some pretty outrageous assertions that were looked at by the judge, including his um, Trump Tower apartment being nearly three times its actual size, inflation on one financial statement by as much as over 2000 um, percent, the apartment market value of, of Trump in, in his New York apartment is, you know, 327 million, which is a patently implausible number, even for New York real estate. So the judge has already found this to be fraud. Um, how and did it by summary judgment? Why did the judge make the decision to rule that way? Okay, first, let me explain to your listeners um, what summary judgment is and how it is used. Summary judgment is a finding by the court on the motion of the parties uh, that there is no factual um, question that a jury needs to resolve. And so the judge may rule taking the facts that have been presented by the moving party that are verified and accompanied by evidence um, and apply the law to them. And he essentially said no reasonable jury could find other than I am finding now there's nothing to do at trial on the fraud charges under New York law, which is a very broad anti-fraud law uh, enacted to protect the public and the nature of the free marketplace so we can rely on each other when we negotiate deals. Uh, it doesn't require that some uh, other business stand up and say, I was harmed. We all benefit from an honest marketplace is the idea of this law. So on that, which is the most important count um, in this, remember, it's a civil suit. Um, the judge said, we know I've ruled every instance of fraud. He is a fraudster. And it was a brutal decision because he knocked down every possible defense that Trump could have raised. Trump really had no defense that he offered. He didn't offer competing evidence. He just had a kind of a what me worry attitude. Uh, you know, I don't take this seriously. You shouldn't either. Um and nobody should believe a word I said because I had a disclaimer on my financials. And no, you can't. It, he said, "You what you're what you Trump are calling a clause showing that this statement is worthless is itself worthless, no matter how sophisticated the banks are." 
So that's all resolved. He did say there were some factual issues in some of the remaining claims brought by the New York, New York Attorney General that have to do with falsifying business records. By the way, the very same kind of claim that is going to be going to trial in March about the uh, Michael Cohn transmission of payments to Stormy Daniels, same law, and insurance fraud. But those are not the big items here. The big item was fraud. This is a career fraudster. This is a con man. Yeah, Professor, the waiver argument is kind of like saying that because a your local bank down the street has poor security, it's okay to rob the bank, right? Um, explain to us now what happens. Uh, we understand that there are still some counts that are being litigated. That's why Trump's in court this week. But as far as the six counts that he has already been found liable for uh, on the fraud counts, what happens now is his ability, is the Trump organization, is the entire family's ability to operate businesses in the state of Illinois, is the uh, state of New York, I should say, now wiped out? Uh, it appears so. The major issues for trial right now, and the trial may run into December. It's it's not going to be fast because there's a lot of evidence to go through. The major issue is uh, how much money Trump and his various entities and his children can be forced to disgorge. And disgorgement is really the important concept. This is not um, a sum for damages to punish them, although some of it may be. There can be damages as well as disgorgement. The idea here is if you made money through fraud, you should not be entitled to reap the rewards of your fraud. Lawyers call that unjust enrichment. You have riches you have not earned, and we want them back. And it doesn't matter whether we can tell you exactly where they came from or that somebody else was harmed. You owe them to us as a society under this New York statute. So it could go much higher than the $250 million the New York Attorney General is seeking. Damages could be added. Uh, the businesses are already under the control of a retired judge to make sure that nothing untoward happened during the trial. And she has already reported that there were continuing fraudulent acts while she was overseeing. And the parties have been told they must submit names of potential, essentially, receivers to liquidate the assets that are going to be need needed to liquidate in order to cover whatever this award is. And what we're waiting to see is how large it will be, and then we'll find out how much needs to be liquidated. But you said, can they do business? Apparently not, because in his initial ruling, the judge said he is immediately uh, lifting, canceling all of the certificates from the state of New York that allow these members of the family, the other named defendants, and all of the Trump entities, whether they're identified here or not, they can no longer do business in New York for now. And um, the attorney general is asking that that be a permanent ban on doing business in New York. And I really expect the judge to grant that because the standard is a risk that this kind of behavior will continue in the future. And given this very long, very detailed 
pattern of repetition, even after being warned, uh, I, I think there's no question that these defendants meet that standard. So, Professor, last question here on Legal Faceoff. Do you think that Trump helped or hurt himself um, by showing up in person at trial um, and doing what he tends to do by way of press conferences, scowling the attacks that he's recently made on the clerk, et cetera? I have to answer that in two different ways. He damaged himself enormously as a matter of what will now happen in the courtroom. But he had nothing going for him. And this is a bench trial. That means it's only a judge, no jury, as he's reminded us. It's his fault and his lawyer's fault. There's no jury. They forgot to ask. Um, but, um, you know, it cannot help his case in court. And he intends to testify. At least he says that. We'll be surprised if he does. Uh, so uh, all of this will hurt him. Uh, but what he is really playing to is his supporters in the court of public opinion. And I think that his uh, ability to wreak havoc, capture the headlines so we almost don't hear what the witness who was his accountant for many years is saying, it's not even covered. Um, and he's distracting from the essence of what was found about him and his uh, now court found, um, you know, he lies all the time. He's a fraudster. He's a snake oil salesman. This is, you know, it, his reputation is based on um, lies. Um, that isn't getting covered in the way that it should. So when he wreaks havoc and he continues to lie in public, he grabs the headlines and it's a big distraction. And he thinks that will help him in uh, trying to be nominated and elected president again. Certainly a lot more to come with that story. Very fascinating stuff, Professor. Thank you for your analysis there. Professor Catherine Ross at George Washington University School of Law. And we really thank you for joining us today. And thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Joining us next here on Legal Faceoff, attorney Peter Seidenberg with Aaron Fox Schiff. He was also with the Department of Justice for 16 years. Here to talk Bob Menendez and his indictment. Thanks so much for joining us today, Peter. Happy to be here. So, Peter, last month, Senator Bob Menendez, who serves as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, along with his wife and three businessmen, were all indicted on three counts of bribery. 
Damien Williams, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, claims that Menendez and his wife received hundreds of thousands of dollars from the co-defendants in exchange for favors and providing sensitive information to the Egyptian government. Tell us more about this case. Well, it's a very serious case, and um, I think it'd be something of a nightmare to to, um, try and defend against. I mean... You know, the fact that he's got over $500,000 or approximately $500,000 in cash stuffed in his pockets of his suit jackets at home and that that cash is in envelopes with got the fingerprints and the DNA of the alleged bribers uh, on it. I mean, and then the gold bars. All right. So you could just start right there and think, you know, you you know, and then, you know, Menendez gives a statement the other day saying, oh, I, you know, I like to have cash around because of my immigrant background, which is sounds like total, you know, pretty weak sauce to me. I mean, nobody has. Why would you have it scattered around in various envelopes as opposed to like, you know, I've got it in a safe for, the, you know, emergencies and who needs five hundred thousand dollars cash? And what does that got to do with the gold bars? And and then, you know. You've got this situation where these businessmen are very, very likely to flip, um, you know, defending a case like this um, is extraordinarily expensive. And, you know, most most people are not going to go to trial. <laughs> and, you know, Menendez may want to because, you know, people who get who beat a case once, as he did, um, tend to feel like they're uh, bulletproof. Um, but this is a very different case than the one that went before. it. And, you know, you've got these allegations of, you know, pretty serious allegations of, um, uh, of bribery where not just that what he received, but what he did in providing um, sensitive information to the Egyptian government and getting contracts for his wife's friend. And then in exchange, she gets a Mercedes you know, I I think it's a very, very formidable uh, indictment. You know, as Kevin said, you spent 16 years prosecuting these type of cases for the DOJ. Um, bring us inside the room. I mean, what what's going on right now in preparation for these trials? We know there are several other defendants, but how attractive are these kind of cases for U.S. attorneys? We know that they're very by the book and they are out to seek justice on behalf of the American people. But at the end of the day, to your point, you can't make up the stuff. You can't. It's like out of a movie with gold bars and Mercedes and cash stuffed in pockets and Egyptians. I mean, they must get also fairly excited to try this kind of case and in pursuit of their mission to send an example to the world. There's only 50 of these people on Earth that even a U.S. senator is not immune to um, justice. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you when they got excited was when they did that search warrant last year. And they went in there hoping to find evidence of um, these bribes. And they, you know, they hit the mother load almost literally. That was an exciting day. And, you know, you do not, you know, you hope you'll find this stuff, but you never know. And so they they really um, struck it rich there. And so at that point, I'm sure they are very excited about the case. Of course, they've got pressure on them because they lost, you know, DOJ lost the case against him um, a few years back. But 
Um, that was a very different case. That was a much tougher case. That was, you know, anyone who looked at that indictment um, would have said at the time that it was going to be, it was a defensible case. You know, there was no, it wouldn't be a case where an attorney getting it would say, you have to plead this case out. That case was defensible. This case is going to be a great deal more challenging uh, to defend. Peter, let's unpack that a little bit more because Bob Menendez seems to be almost like the cat with nine lives. He's been the target of authorities for a long time. Um, as you mentioned, you know, he's been indicted previously 10 years ago. Um, there were allegations that his favors to a longtime friend and political donor, Salman Melgin, um, were illegal, but that ultimately resulted in a mistrial. He was also um, under investigation in 2006 by Chris Christie um, on suspicion of steering federal funds to a local nonprofit. Ultimately, charges were not brought in that case. And there are several other instances where he's been the target of investigations. Um, what makes this case different. I know from an evidentiary standpoint, you said that you think that there's stronger evidence here, but are there any, is, is there anything else that makes this case different from, you know, the, the several other instances where folks may have thought they, they finally had him gold bars and $500,000 cash. <laughs> that, that makes pretty big difference. You know, if they had done this search and they hadn't found that stuff, um, you know, it would be a very different case. Um, I mean, they still have apparently quite a lot of text messages and emails and um, and whatnot. Um, but, you know, what makes this case different is the quid. You know, in in the, um, the case from a few years back, he was flying on the plane, the private plane of his buddy. Well, this guy really was his buddy. I mean, they had their families had vacationed together for years and years. And um, the guy was extraordinarily rich. So he's giving him favors. He's giving him, you know, free hotel rooms and taking him on vacations and all this stuff. But they really were friends. So, you know, there was a question that could be raised about motive, you know, whether what was this a bribe or is this just done out of genuine um, friendship? Um, in the McDonald case, uh, the governor from uh, Virginia, you know, that largesse that was being bestowed upon him by the bribe payer in that case, that guy just showed up on the doorstep after he became governor. You know, this was this was not a longtime friend. So, you know, McDonald got convicted. It got overturned in the Supreme Court. But the jury liked that case. The, the first Menendez trial, it didn't like the case. Well, at least a couple of jurors didn't. I mean, most of them, I think, were vote well. I take that back. I think it was fifth, uh, 10 to 2 for acquittal. So they they dropped that case. This case is very different. Um, you got a lot of different benefits. You got him using um, his, his office um, to benefit his wife directly um, in terms of getting her jobs, getting her friend, getting her Mercedes and getting himself a lot of money. So um you know, from an evidentiary evidentiary standpoint, um, it's, you know, it's not a case that I think is going to be a challenge for the government to win. I think they're going to win this case. Last question, uh, Peter, we have time for. And you just mentioned um, some of Menendez's defenses. One thing he said is that these charges 
show a basic misunderstanding by the prosecutor of the workings of a Senate office. Any chance that's true? Any chance that the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York just doesn't get it, just doesn't understand how these things really work? Uh, No, I don't think so. I think that maybe, you know, that's an argument that he can try with the jury, you know, that this is routine stuff. But I think that from what I'm reading in the indictment, if it's true, you know, giving the Egyptians a heads up on um, on what he's going to be doing in terms of lifting uh, uh, weapons embargoes and trying to uh, maneuver a contract for a little f- friend of his wife, who's also giving him paying for a Mercedes. And of course, the, the payments for that Mercedes stopped once the investigation began. So um, if it was all on the up and up, you know, why did they stop, you know, making these payments? So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure he'll try and say, you know, and and some of the conduct, you know, may have been um, the type of work that they can say is is um, routine. But, you know, the, the question isn't really whether it's routine work that a Senate office does. It's whether that work is being done in exchange for money. You know, if you're get, taking a bribe to do what a Senate office, that means you're taking official acts. And if you're doing it for money, that's a bribe. That's illegal. Attorney Peter Seidenberg with Aaron Fox Schiff. So uh, we appreciate you joining us and uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Next up on Legal Faceoff, attorney Trey Lovell at the Lovell Firm here to talk Danny Masterson with us. Trey, thanks so much for being a part of the show today. Well, thank you for having me. So, Trey, last month, Danny Masterson was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison following two rape convictions in May. This was his second rape trial. The first trial resulted in a hung jury last November. He had been accused of drugging and forcibly raping women at his Hollywood Hills home more than 20 years ago while he was on the show, That 70s Show. Tell us more about this case. Well, it's interesting because, as you noted, in the first trial, it was a hung jury, uh, and then they retried him. But what's interesting is, is what happened in the second trial in terms of the evidence. In the first trial, the judge didn't allow evidence that the women were drugged. There was no toxicology report, uh, and the women really couldn't, couldn't talk too much about that. In the second trial, the judge allowed it. And it became a theme and uh, of the case, and the women could, could directly discuss that they had been drugged. Uh, in addition, uh, the Church of Scientology played a big part of the first trial, but even more in the second trial. They allowed an expert to come in in the second trial uh, to really booster up the, the claims that, that because of the church, the women had not come forward uh, and were scared to. And that really, I think, made a difference as well. Um, you know, and so in the second trial, you know, obviously two of the three women were found guilty and they got the maximum sentence. The maximum. Well, the maximum sentence, I believe, what could have been 45 years. He got two 15 year terms to be served consecutively. Isn't that true? Well, no. The, well, I mean, they got the maximum sentence per per victim. So the most that the judge could could sentence them for 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 this out for these charges uh, and convictions would be 15 to life per person. So, yeah, if they, if they had found the third one uh, uh, criminally, liable, criminally responsible as well, then, yeah, it, it would have boosted up to 45. But but in terms of, of who they found had been raped, 
uh, he got the maximum per, per woman. Okay, so apparently his celebrity status didn't help him uh, avoid the maximum sentence for those cases, right? True. It, it's interesting because normally I think celebrity status helps. You know, when you've got a celebrity or a famous athlete uh, in court, you know, I think, uh, you know, the, they may have a lot of admirers. The judge may be an admirer or, or a fan, the jury. Uh, and so sometimes they'll get a little bit better treatment. However, when, when the, the conduct is egregious, uh, the celebrity kind of works against them, especially if it's high profile. The judges often will see an opportunity to, 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 to you know, to make a statement. Uh, they know that that they're going to be scrutinized. There's a lot of public attention. And so sometimes the celebrity status can actually hurt. And I think that's what happened here. You know, the, the, as, as we noted, you got you got the, the, the full sentence, you know, per conviction. Uh, and, um, you know, I think the judge felt felt compelled and scrutinized, you know, would be under scrutiny and, and wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, he made a statement with respect to what had happened. So, Trey, you mentioned how the Church of Scientology was at the center of this trial. Um, given that both Masterson as well as his victims are members of the church, what impact do you think this case has on the public perception of the church? You know, I, I think it's going to be significant. You know, the, the public has been aware of the Church of Scientology, the power that it has with its members for, for, for decades. Um, and, and through the years, you know, incidences have come out, you know, just kind of illuminate a little bit more what happened to the church. Here, I think it was really illuminated because they came out and 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 the women were saying how they were threatened. Um, you know, they there was even even some some citation that that they had killed somebody's dog. Uh and so so they the, the church was un, under the the microscope on this one. Um and there was even an expert that testified in the in, in the second trial. Um, and so, I, and there's also civil lawsuits going against the church now, which through discovery can really open up, you know, the inner workings of the church. So I think, I think this may be the beginning of a, of a, of a slippery slope with them. You know, I think this may be an opportunity for, for other people to come forward, talk about their experiences. Uh, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot more claims and a lot more activities, uh, uh against the church. Uh, going forward. Great. Last question here on Legal Faceoff. Russell Brand, the English comedian, is currently being investigated for allegations of sexual offenses against a number of women. Uh, a few months ago, Cuba Gooding Jr., former Oscar winner, settled a federal lawsuit brought by uh, an alleged victim of, of rape. Um, we have seen uh, a steady stream of accusations against high-profile defendants, obviously starting with the Me Too movement. Where do you think that movement stands right now and in light of uh, these most recent cases that we've discussed today? Well, I, I think it's still prevalent. You know, um, right when the Me Too movement happened, uh, there was there was such a cyclone, such a storm that people were scared to get on the other side of it. Um, and I think that's that's calmed down a little bit. Um, but I do think that that, you know, it has allowed all of these cases, these age old, decades old, cases to come forward, whereas before the Me Too movement, th th they wouldn't be prosecuted. So I think I think the movement, you know, I, I think whereas when it first happened, like a lot of employers, you know, if there's accusations, they would just fire the the executives and, and they little tolerance. Now there's a little more investigation. They're not taking the women at their word per se. They want to make, give both sides an opportunity. Um, but there is still uh, a lot of momentum with the Me Too movement. To the fact where, where even when you have these old claims, they're getting these convictions. 
So it's still prevalent. Attorney Trey Lovell at The Lovell Firm, talking Danny Masterson with us. Trey, really appreciate your insight on this. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Now time for the Legal Grab Bag segment here on Legal Faceoff on WGN should be an action-packed one actor, writer, impersonator with 45 guest appearances on The Howard Stern Show. John D. Domenico joins us now. Also, editor Catherine Rubino with Above the Law and a podcast host of The Jabot and Thinking Like a Lawyer. Lots of her articles that we'll touch on in this segment. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here. Tina's going to kick us off now with a few things with the former president. Lots going on in his world. What's the latest here? I mean, Trump watch. I think we should have our sound effect. Maybe John could do our sound effect. We'll try <laughs> Trump watch. <laughs> I'm tremendous. I'm fantastic. And I'm totally innocent. Beep, 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 beep. That's our official Trump watch going forward. So <laughs> listen, we just covered a little bit of the Trump watch, Tina. But the, the most amazing parts from the last week or so is, I mean, the gag order is really interesting. And like telling Trump that he has a gag order, that there's no one in the world that's going to do the exact opposite, right? I mean, right. Yes. we've seen him on the courthouse steps. We've seen him all over the court this week attacking the judge, attacking the clerk, attacking the uh, the AG. Um, and uh, you know, It's all rigged. It's all rigged against me. <laughs> it is, right? I mean, Mr. Ex-President, why is the clerk, why is the clerk subject to your attack? What did she do? Well, because crying Chuck Schumer, they're obviously dating. I know he's married, but it's a side piece. And they've got photos together. And you take a photo of somebody that automatically means they're sleeping together. So everyone's against me. And this is Judge Engerans. Judge Engerans clerk. Clerk, this is the person running the judge for the room and the people who are all against me. It's so sad. It's so sad. And I had a very clear, compelling case. I told everybody I'm actually worth a lot more than the judge put in. And I also have a disclaimer. I have a disclaimer. Void were prohibited that I put in every single contract. And you know the numbers aren't real. None of these numbers are real. No one deals in real numbers, especially me. That's why I put in the disclaimer and everyone knows. And now you got the guy from uh, Mazers or 
morons or whatever. He was my accountant. Now he's saying, I lied. I never lie. I'm the most honest person in the history of honesty. And a lot of people, you can look that up on the Google. A lot of people believe I'm the most honest person. And I think the judge should just, you know, hit the gavel and say, dismissed and I'm excoriated. And I would like to be excoriated because that's what you should do in legal cases like this. You have someone like me who's done nothing wrong and I made the country so incredible, but they have these things where they want, you know, they want the numbers to match. No one does that. Believe me, I built a lot of buildings and they say my apartment is actually smaller than the square feet, but in my mind, it's bigger. So that's the number I put down. So I think we've covered everything here. They should just (laughs) let me go. Judge Engeron. It's really sad. It's really sad. Oh, by the way, Letitia James, Letitia James hates me. She absolutely hates me. And I, I have a lot of reasons why. I have a lot of, I'm not going to say it because then I'll get in trouble because I, they gave me a gag order, uh, a gag order. It's very narrow, but it's still, it's my free speech that I'm now to speechify with. So it's sad, truly sad. Mr. Ex President, what's up with the scowl? Why do you think that the scowl is the best strategy? And you're, because you're not really putting forth any actual legal arguments. But the scowl seems to be your secret weapon. What's going on there? Well, because I did the, you know, the T-shirt that I did. Never surrender, except after the fourth time. I had to surrender four times. But after the fourth time, never surrender. (laughs) It worked very well for me on the T-shirt. And I think we can get some T-shirts made outside the courtroom. We'll have a little booth or something. We'll sell squeezy balls and T-shirts and more hats. And I think we'll do very well. We'll do it very well. A lot of the people are with me. 90% of the people in the lobby are with me. And the 10% inside can't stand me for some reason. I don't know. Oh, my God. Catherine, what do you make of the gag order? He's now appealed it. Today, he filed an appeal. Um, What do you make of the gag order and his threats inherently to the clerk and to the judge and Mm -hmm. calling up the clerk? What do you make of all that? I mean, I think it's kind of interesting that when Judge uh, Engeron decided that enough was enough, because Trump has been making these threats against the judge, been saying all sorts of terrible things about the judge for an awful long time, but that wasn't enough to to kind of push it over the edge for the judge. It was when they attacked staff members, right? It was when they went after the clerk, right? A, a career person who works in the, the courthouse. That's when, that's when, that's the line, uh, which I think says something very specific about, about Judge Engeron. And the, the gag order is also specific. It's don't put you, my staff members' names in your mouth. <laughs> it's not, you know, don't talk about the case. It's, it's kind of really tailored to exactly what the problem is. Uh, and and I think that, I, I think it was really uh, interesting to, to watch the judge go out on the limb for his staff members. So Tina, we, uh, we, we can't move on from Trump Watch without talking about this sketch art that is immediately an instant classic. We'll, we'll pull it up here in a second. But the we'll get the former president's opinion on this in a second. But there's a great uh, 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 this on social media. There it is. And this uh, the ex president with another ex leader. Um, (laughs) Tina, what do you what do you make this before we turn it over to the ex president? Um, I'm speechless. I mean, this is somebody. This is someone from I don't know the Trump fan club or whatever you want to call it. The whole notion of putting him with his scowl sitting in court next to a depiction of Jesus Christ is remarkable. I mean, Mr. Ex-President, I, I think you have a different perspective on this. Well, point. basically, I think a lot of people associate me with Jesus. and I love Jesus. He's a tremendous guy. We've spoken a lot 
recently, and that's what we do because, you know, he's, did you know he's Jewish? No one talks about that. No one talks about that. I love the Jewish people, great people, fantastic people, so good with money. And did you know I'm the one who moved the, the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and that's where Jesus was. And the Jewish people love me so much, they think my middle name is Donald Jewish Trump, which is not the case, which is, it's actually genius. It's Donald genius, uh, stable genius at that. And that's why Jesus was with me in the courtroom, because we've done so many amazing things together. The evangelicals have put their hands on me, and that's why he's there. He's guiding me. He's guiding me through this court. And by the way, a lot of people know that this Jesus had a law degree from Galilee University, and that's why he's there, and he's put in some tremendous, tremendous information. I think he's been very, very helpful, and I, I, love, the, I love the big guy. And for what I've been told, this is isn't me saying this, that, uh, you know, my favorite book is The Art of the Deal. My second favorite book is is the Bible, uh, the Bible. But I'm not in the Bible. I'm not in the Bible. But yet when he was sitting next to me the other day, he told me I'm going to be in the new edition of the Bible. So now it's my number one book. It's my number one book, which I think is great. Number one and number two is fantastic. Just like the just like the uh, the Constitution and the amendments and all that kind of stuff. You know, the uh, first one is free speech and the second one is guns. I think we should switch those or get rid of free speech, but not for me, because I want I should be able to say anything I want and could. Mr. Expresso, one last question on uh, on Jesus Christ before we move on. You know, he famously had a Last Supper. We know that you enjoy your Big Macs and McDonald's and yeah, a lot of Diet Cokes. What would be uh, your Last Supper, uh, similar to what Jesus said? Well, I think we would do a smorgasbord uh, or a poo-poo platter. I don't, I don't like the Chinese food because, you know, it upsets my stomach. But I think if we did uh, a Frosty from Wendy's, uh, the Big Mac and the fries – from uh, from McDonald's, it's always consistently good, and a pizza from Papa John. Pizza from Papa John. He's a big supporter. He sent me a lot of money, a lot of money, Papa John, and he lives in a big house. Who knew making pizza you could have such a mansion? But it's true. It's true. So I think the pizza, the Big Mac, the fries, and the Wendy's Frosty uh, Vanilla, because that's my favorite. Maybe two of those would be incredible. <laughs> I wish that part of this uh, segment could go on. <laughs> much longer that was great uh Thanks. so much fun <laughs> can't stop laughing that was really good uh well let's go to the next segment it's gonna be hard to follow up but tupac shakur a grand jury's indicted somebody on murder charges the decades old. Vegas. what's that here in las vegas where i live yeah i mean decades old case certainly something there's been documentaries made on this books written on this finally some uh, it appears to be some justice on the horizon for a murder of a 25-year-old rapper and up-and-coming star. So let's start what? with that. Yeah, so, Keith, uh, oh, sorry, Tina, go ahead. Yeah, this, so um, Kevin, so yes, last week, uh, Dwayne Keith, Keefe D. Davis, was arrested in Las Vegas in connection with use of a deadly weapon in connection with the 1996 killing of rapper Tupac Shakur. Um, as you mentioned, Kevin, this case has been going on for years. It went cold and then several years ago um, came back on the front burner. Um, there was a search of Keefe D's wife's home in July in Las Vegas, and um, the evidence included a memoir that Davis wrote detailing the murder. Davis had actually confessed to doing the crime back in 2009, but had a proffer agreement. And so... 
it made it a little bit complicated for the authorities to be able to pursue Keefe D. So what happened back in 96, Shakur was shot and killed when he was leaving um, a boxing match. It was Mike Tyson actually on the Las Vegas Strip. Davis was allegedly the ringmaster in the planning of Shakur's murder um, in retaliation for what was a gang-based attack on Davis's nephew earlier in the evening. As many of our fans know, Tupac was in a car with Suge Knight, who ended up also being shot but not fatally wounded as Tupac was. Um, there was a white Cadillac that had pulled up next to the BMW that Shakur and Knight were in. Um, there were shots that were fired from someone allegedly in the back seat of that car. And um, Shakur was and ended up being fatally shot. He died a few days later and Suge Knight was was injured um, and went on to live and is actually in prison. But we'll get to that in a minute. So there was apparently, um, you know, a, a fight that broke out between rival gangs and um, Davis's nephew Orlando ended up getting beaten up by Shakur's gang. And apparently this all was done as a retaliatory measure. Um, this may not be an open and shut case. However, um, Suge Knight this week, actually yesterday, came forward from prison to say that he is not planning on testifying against Keefe D and that the authorities have it all wrong and that Keefe D was actually not the real shooter, nor was Orlando his nephew. Um, but he claims that under no circumstances is he going to testify. Suge Knight was convicted in 2018 for the murder of a Compton businessman. And so he's actually serving 28 years in prison. So um, we've been following this story since July when um, there was a, a raid on the on Davis's wife's house. But um, given what Suge Knight has come forward with, Rich, that's an interesting wrinkle. Yeah, I mean, Catherine, I, all I have to say to this case is the um, old standard legal theory of uh, snitches get stitches. It, it certainly feels like that's uh, a lot of what's going on. I think one of the in investigators in the case said that it, had, it was not an unsolved case for all these years. It was just an unprosecuted case that rumors about what who was really behind it were were circulating for a very long time. Um, and, and you know, nothing really unlocks those kind of core memories of the late 90s as much as kind of hearing this back in the news. And, uh, and even, you know, regardless, I guess, of, of what the eventual legal posture is on the case, it's, it's good to have us uh, all talking about, you know, that tragic incident. John, your Instagram uh, handle, which is visited daily by billions Johnny D. My question is: you are you related to Keefe D? Are you are you somehow related? You both have the same last name. We go way back. Me and Keefe. Uh, I moved here in two thousand and eleven, but this this case is a lot of people talk about it. I was introduced through a friend of mine who's a reporter here to the lead investigator. So this is a very small town. So you kind of run into people that are involved in all these different things. But the case is so fascinating. And you were, uh, Catherine was just saying, late 90s, East Coast, West Coast, you know, come to Las Vegas. There's a shooting where 
honestly, this is an incredibly safe town. Most things like that just don't happen here. So it's um, uh, it's something the town is is everyone who lives here is kind of aware of because of the the impact it had on the on the brand, so to speak, uh, of here. And it was a you know it's a loss and people died. It's a horrible thing and no one likes gang violence where where just civilians can be uh, injured or hurt, you know, car accident. So it's something we're we're painfully aware of here. Quick question. What would, um, I'm just wondering, uh, weirdly enough, what Dr. Phil would think about this whole violence and situation? Hey, everybody, it's me, Dr. Phil, and I have to tell you, these types of things are not good, okay? When it comes to a relationship between East Coast, West Coast, it doesn't matter how flat you make a pancake, it's got two sides. And the people who are involved in this case, let me tell you something. And I have, as you all know, in the legal world, the way I got started by my savior, Oprah, I was a jury consultant for the beef industry. And something I like to say in any criminal or civil cases is you can put a kimono on a squirrel, but it still won't speak Japanese. Okay. I think we know what we're talking about here. I don't know what impression I like more, that one or uh, the former president. <laughs> How many more you got in there? Oh, you know, I got, you know, I got the guy Fieri, baby, who's also here in Las Vegas, man. Love piece of taco grease. I'm driving the bus to Flavor Town. I think we know what town that is, baby. Swinging Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, uh, it kind of gives us a parlay and uh, to this next one, not uh, in a Florida road rage stabbing. Hopefully, he's not driving into Flavor Town. What? What's up with this attorney, Patrick Scruggs? He was arrested following a wild road rage incident. Uh, lawyers aren't above the law, are they here? Uh, probably not. I mean, this was an interesting one that we'd love to get Catherine's thoughts on. So um, Patrick Scruggs is a Florida attorney um, who last week um, and was most recently at at uh, Barnes and Thornburg um, and also a former government lawyer who had gone after people accused in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, he um, was accused of one count of aggravated battery with a deadly weapon, as well as aggravated assault and armed burglary. This incident happened last week on the bridge connecting St. Petersburg and Tampa during the morning rush hour. Um, it all started when a car stopped on the highway blocking southbound traffic and the driver slumped over. A couple was driving by, saw the man and stopped to try to help him. Um, they were trying to get into his car by breaking a window to see if they could help him. They weren't able to actually break the window and so looked for something to break the window. And then as all that was going on, the slumped over driver wakes up, jams on the gas pedal, crashes into the couple's car, then tries to maneuver around their car by backing up and then hits Scruggs' car. So Scruggs gets out of his car, breaks the window of that first driver's car, pulls out a pocket knife, and starts stabbing the driver repeatedly. When the couple from the second car came by to try to figure out what was going on and to try to um, help, they, he tried to stab them also. So a very strange turn of events um, he's been released on bond since his arrest and has entered a not guilty plea. 
His defense attorney said, folks, there's a lot more to this incident than what meets the eye. And he's asking the public to wait until they bring the additional facts to light about what actually occurred. So a very strange set of circumstances, Barnes and Thornburg um, has actually come out and said that he is no longer um, employed by Barnes and Thornburg. Not surprising given the crazy press on this. Um, so I guess we'll have to figure out what happened here because it's really kind of a crazy set of facts here. Yeah, you covered, you, you wrote a great article about this story. Uh, what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is, you know, it's a wild set of circumstances. It kind of is, you know, Florida man meets big law attorney. I think it's it's really going to be even more fascinating. As as you said, the attorney says that there's more details that we don't even know yet. I'm fascinated to find out what those might be. But, you know, we know that being an attorney is a high pressure profession. I'm sure he was late. I'm sure he was late to work, <laughs> uh, you know, and that that sort of the backdrop of the road rage incident. But but despite that, you would you would like to think that someone who, you know, takes takes an oath to defend the Constitution as a former federal prosecutor, someone who, you know, is is a member of the bar, has a little bit more uh a little more, you know, circumspect about <laughs> launching into acts of, of physical violence. Uh, but I guess it just kind of goes to show you that uh, these sorts of violent things, the, the legal profession's not insulated in some way from the violence that exists in our society. And, uh, you know, this is somebody who's absolutely practicing at the top levels of the profession. As we said, federal prosecutor, big law of counsel. You know, these are these are high power jobs. Uh, and and still, you know, still has a pocket knife that he's willing to wield in traffic. Yeah. Stay away from driving in Florida is the takeaway. But, John, you know, it's a story of a, of a of a strange guy in Florida. You know, who's another who you know, who was another strange guy from Florida. You guys like these segues? Uh, Billy Mays Jr. From, from uh, the late great Billy Mays Jr. from OxyClean. What do you think he would have made of this? story. Uh, okay. I'm Billy Mays and I would never carry a pen knife. I would have a machete. <laughs> we could cut that car in half and this would never happen. <laughs> By the way, Billy Mays died of a cocaine overdose. What a shocker. Who would have seen that coming? <laughs> the guy was busy in the swamplands of Florida putting boats together after he crushed them with his hands. What a shocker he was jacked up on cocaine. With liquid rubber. <laughs> But he did discover oxyclade, so he that was his one big his claim to fame. So, what do you think could get you into law school faster, ChatGPT or a John impersonation writing your letter for you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. When he was told the story about the guy, I was thinking, folks, I hate to bother you. I'm a little confused. This guy was a former attorney, and he pulled a knife. Jeez, I, wow. Holy <laughs> that's, that's for anyone under the age of 87. That's Colombo, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I do old impressions. These are classics. These are classics. Let's give a Mark Griffin up your sleeve or anything. <laughs> oh, Groucho. We'll be an ED on ice. That's nice. Right back. <laughs> I, I am curious about this next one. And Catherine, I was reading through this article as you guys were just talking. This is really fascinating. With with ChatGPT and AI and all these new technologies and things like this coming out, I mean, this can really change the way certain people get into law school. I, I'm, I'm curious. I, I really want to hear 
a little bit more about this article. Uh, yeah, this is really uh, fascinating to me. Kaplan, you know, everyone has heard of them if they're trying to get into law school. They do a bunch of test prep stuff. Uh, they do surveys too. Uh, and 66% of prospective uh, law students said that they should not be allowed to use uh, generative AI, chat GPT being the most famous of them, uh, to write their essays to get into law school. Uh, and some of the quotes, I think, reveal just how competitive by nature uh, law school applicants are. Is They didn't want, they don't want anybody to get, they don't want somebody who's not as smart as they are to get in instead of them. <laughs> uh, and that, that seems to be the main motivation behind it. I think it was 14% said that they should be allowed to do it. Um, one person said, listen, you're not going to be able to every create to have any real rules. You're never really going to know. So you might as well let everybody use chat GPT. Um, and the rest of the people are like, I don't, I don't really know. And the interesting thing is that not very many law schools have rules about whether or not you can use chat GPT in your law school admissions. Uh, Michigan has come out and said, no, you can't. Arizona State has said, yes, you can. Uh, everyone else has been pretty quiet about it. Uh, so it's kind of waits. We're going to wait and see. But I think that part of the reason why law schools aren't really pushing the gas on making a rule about it is that the essays are not the most important part about getting into law school, right? Uh, I think that law schools put an unmatched amount of prominence on LSAT scores uh, and your testing scores and your grades in school as sort of second best. And maybe a distant third is your personal essay. So I think that most law schools are probably like, well, it's going to depend on what they did. They get 171. Then we'll worry about whether or not they use chat GPT on their essay. But if they got less than the score or whatever, they're, you know, different schools have different break lines. If it's less than that, it doesn't matter anyway. Um, so I think that it is definitely a problem that we're going to see more and more of. Um, but I think that as long as the LSAT remains the dominant uh, law school admissions test, uh, you know, I, I don't think law, law schools are that concerned. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting, Catherine, because, you know, I look at it through the lens of an IP lawyer, and there's been a lot of conversation both on the patent as well as the trademark and copyright side about what chat GPT means for the landscape of IP and protectability of IP. I did find it interesting that folks were really sort of more focused in some ways on the competitive edge or lack thereof by using chat GPT. But being a profession, I mean, my personal thought on it is that being a profession that really sort of honors ethics and sort of like we have a, a code by which we conduct ourselves and that starts in law school. Um, I actually feel pretty strongly chat GPT should not be used um, for writing essays and so forth. And we really sort of have to like it's an honor code system, right, mm -hmm. um, as a profession. And I, I think that we should have people um, writing their own essays and standing by 100 percent things being authorized, you know, being authored by themselves and not being not using um, AI to help draft it. I agree with you. I think certain schools weigh essays more than others. But this to me is the beginning of a long experience in the legal profession where it's an honor code and ethics based type of profession. Yeah, I mean, I think AI is going to bring a whole host of new novel legal issues to the forefront. And that's just another one that we're going to kind of have to wait and see on. I actually wrote a, an opening, a general session opening that I write and would usually perform. And I said, let, let, let me put this through, you know, let me just put this through chat uh, GPT and it actually made it better. I mean, the, I issues, the issues with using things like people's voices and stuff is mm -hmm. right of publicity 
um, right to privacy for folks that are not famous, but then you've right. got the overlay of a president or a former president where there are special considerations relating to, um, you know, talking about politicians and, and people like that, the, the First Amendment overlay, that sort of thing. But, you know, these are issues that are continuing to evolve. Um, some of them are creatures of state law. Some of them, there's hopes that like right of publicity, that there will finally be a federal law that will um, evolve in sync with the chat GPT and AI issues. So I think a lot of these things remain to be seen, both from a legislative standpoint, as well as cases that are going to end up getting filed and potentially, um, you know, end up getting decided as chat GPT continues to evolve. Really quickly, John, you know who was also ahead of his time technologically was Dr. Evil, who foresaw his his ability to cryogenically survive. What do you think he would make of this story? Well, you know, Rich, I don't have to use chat GPTO because I'm oh, oh, today it's the oh, Austin Powers just found. Thank you. They, they see that I come on air and the national warning goes off. You right. know, I was just saying to Scott, you're just not evil enough. You're quasi evil. You're semi evil. You're the Diet Coke of evil. Just one candidate. Uh, I think that yeah, the 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 Chat GPT and AI thing is super interesting too, John. I I I want I, I we have that in the back of our minds for radio people all the time. As just in general, will news people's voices be replaced? Certainly a, a question that a lot of people talked about and where that type of technology is going. Maybe we'll get more answers on it in the future. A little bit of a lighter note here, guys. Another article written here by Catherine. Uh, Survivor, a couple of the contestants didn't want to admit that they were attorneys. Why is that? Wait, wait what was that? I missed that last part. Uh, they didn't uh, want to admit that they were attorneys on the show, like in front of the audience. Yeah, last week was the season premiere of Survivor, and three of the contestants are attorneys, but only two of them well, two of them refused to admit that they were attorneys. Uh, one said that she was an art teacher, which was her profession pre-going to law school, and she said, no one wants to give a million dollars to a lawyer. <laughs> the yeah. other the other attorney is actually the same tribe. <laughs> the two of the other, the other two attorneys are both in the same tribe. One of them will admit to being a lawyer, and he's uh, a brand new newbie lawyer, just passed the bar exam, so he's very excited, I think, about his profession more than anything else. I don't think he could lie about being a lawyer, even if he wanted to. Uh, the other one's a very experienced civil rights lawyer, uh, and it was hilarious to watch her pretend like she was not a lawyer, talking to the admitted lawyer, Jake, uh, on the show, being like, what's it like to be a lawyer? And I was like, you could you could legalize, run circles around him in legal uh, in legal circles. And it was hilarious to watch. And she doesn't want people to think of her as someone who's really smart and, you know, potentially conniving, right? I think there's a lot of stereotypes about what kind of, you know, they're fast talking, you know, willing to sell their grandmother for a quick buck. I think that's a lot of what the stereotypes of being a lawyer are. And you, know, when you're trying to win a million dollars, you're you don't want to be you don't want to be held back by any of those stereotypes. But that's a great recipe for a relationship from, you know, out of the gate to be lying about, you know, what you've spent years studying and do for a living. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's not the first time on listen, people lie about all sorts of things on Survivor. I think last season it was uh, folks were lying about whether or not they were salespeople. Uh, one one salesman was wanted to target another salesperson because 
she's a salesperson. And that's what he was going around telling other tribe mates. We should get rid of her. She's a salesperson. She knows how to make a good argument. And I was like, but, but that's what you do. And he's like, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But that's why he lied about his profession. So I think that it's kind of, you know, not unheard of. There have been NFL players who've lied about being NFL, former NFL players on the show. I think it's, it's, it happens a lot, but it was really funny to watch two lawyers on the same episode make the same decision for very similar reasons, I think. Uh, And then that one, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, brand-new, freshly-minted lawyer, too excited, too excited when they asked him, what's it like to be a lawyer? He was like, scary. And your heart just kind of went out in like the most adorable way possible. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's all about the social game. We know that, right, from 25 years or whatever it is, a survivor. But I'm going to resume my role, Tina, as putting the coins in the John jukebox and ask him this question about survivor, because you know who's another famous survivor this is Ozzy Osbourne right uh, 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 years and years of drug use and I, I, I was getting on this song I, I was getting I'm the principal of this man I've had a lot of attorneys there because I bit the head off a back <laughs> <laughs> oh my god Ozzy, we love you, Ozzy. Uh, Ozzy. 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 <laughs> He's so great. Isn't he great? Just, He's awesome. He just hangs in there. He's so funny. I it, There was one episode of The Osbournes just years ago, and I followed the show. With the From the beginning to the end, he was had like a sketch pad. You could not see what he was drawing. And he's sketching, and he's showing the gold boobs on the carpets again. And he kept drawing and kept drawing. And I was thinking, Wow. And Ozzy all wrong. He's a he's an artist. He's like Tony Bennett. And I can't wait to the end of the episode so I can see this thing. And 30 minutes goes by and he finally turns it around. It's literally a stick figure. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. He has no artistic talent whatsoever. What do you think of this man? Do you have a Taylor Swift impression, John? Not yet. I'm gonna be. No. I'm, gonna, I'm going on the rack today to be stretched out. I so. think Rich might have a good one for us. <laughs> Rich, you got to go. On. <laughs> that's our. That's our. Uh, that's our last stop here on the legal grab bag segment. Taylor Swift's legal team uh, proving that uh, picking a lawsuit against the artist isn't always the best idea. That article out there is what we're going to discuss next. Um, what do you guys think of this one? Yeah, I mean, like obviously Taylor Swift is was the biggest star on the planet. And now after her, her now what, two-game romance with uh, Travis Kelsey of the Chiefs, Tina, she's now uh, even bigger than ever. We've got, you know, uh, lots of people going to see these games and buying Kelsey uh, jerseys who were not even fans of the NFL before. But we've covered these stories before. Uh, Taylor Swift is, of course, no stranger to litigation. Anyone in her position has uh, inevitably been sued many times for various IP uh, alleged IP issues. Um, she's, you know, survived most of them. And and, and to the extent of actually, you know, uh, coming out of the other side with her allegations against Scooter Braun. And just last week, she released her own version of 1989, which has been uh, what she's been doing with her entire catalog. Just Tina, explain to us briefly, if you can, if this is not legal advice, of course, uh, why she decided to re-record and release her albums this way. What 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 is she trying to accomplish there? 
What she's trying to accomplish is to deal with the rights that her record company has in the recordings. And so as the songwriter, um, you know, she has the ability to perform the songs. Um, and what she's trying to do is to bypass essentially without getting too technical, bypass the rights in the songs and in the recordings that her record company has, because she's got rights in the songs. She's, she's a songwriter. She owns the rights in the songs, but they own the rights and the performances as they were recorded and released on her original albums. But by redoing the albums with, you know, from out from under her record company, she's able to essentially get the revenues that she thinks she's entitled to that. She believes that her record company essentially took from her by virtue of the, of the contract she originally had. Catherine, you've probably covered uh, stories like this. I don't know if you've covered Taylor Swift as a litigant before, but uh, again, we've covered on this show dozens of occasions of uh, musicians and other artists being accused of uh, stealing other intellectual property. And mm -hmm. the bigger star you are, the bigger hits you have, the more likely you are to be a, t a target, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm a self-proclaimed Swifty myself. Um, actually, 1989, Taylor's version is coming out late at the end of this month, uh, October 27th. I have a pre-order already in for my niece, so I had to make sure I got that in. Um, but I think that that's absolutely true. And I think one of the reasons that Taylor Swift has been more insulated from that is that her recordings are so very personal. I think that the most recent case was about her Lover album, and it was a book of poetry that she, that she was alleged to have uh, copied. And you know, the, the things that she, that they were able to say that she copied was like a pink and blue pastel cover. And it's like, well, that, that's not really copyrightable, is it? <laughs> uh, because really the content was so very different because she writes from, I think a, a place that's really personal. Uh, she was able to get that case. To, well, I, I think that the plaintiff actually voluntarily withdrew it after the first round of briefing by her attorneys. So, you know, it was, it, you know, I think that she has that great position to to sort of operate from because she is, you know, writing uh, both the lyrics and the music in a lot of these instances, at least a co-writer on all of her songs. Yeah, John, you uh, obviously uh, use the, uh, you know, use likenesses of people as part of your act. You're protected by various defenses, including. Right. But uh, what's your take on the story? Well, on this particular story, you know, I'm a huge Billy Joel fan. And I remember in an interview that he did, he said, you know, before they release any album, they're pretty much braced for the lawsuits that follow. Like, I wrote this song and I wrote this song. And I always find it interesting. And John Grisham was on 60 Minutes a number of years ago. I, and he said the same exact thing. Like, when the book is finished and they're getting ready to release, they're ramping up and expanding their legal team because they know this is going to happen. Some of them are just nuisance cases, but some of them have what are seemingly legit um, uh, complaints but with, you know, uh, but Kathy made a great point. Unlike a lot of writers, and if you take Billy Joel, like the, the big one was A River of Dreams. Um, that's It's a personal song, but anyone could have written it the way it was constructed. But a lot of Taylor Swift stuff really is super specific to her. So it would be very difficult. Uh, well, not difficult. Obviously, people are you know ramping up and doing these things. But her music is different in that sense. Uh, and I always just find it very interesting when there's uh, you know <laughs> anybody when they go into court on these things and they say there's only five chords in a song and there's only so many ways you can rearrange them. Eventually, somewhere in a song, things are going to be similar. 
you know, and uh, those came in the Ed, Ed Sheeran, I think, was the most recent. Mm-hmm. And he won because he proved exactly his how he writes the song and how he comes to these lyrics and how he comes to these specific chord progressions. And I, I think when they when they go into court and they testify, you can really see it. And the hard part is getting them into court as opposed to a bunch of attorneys who may not have a musical background and really can't explain it the same way. Well, let's give the last word. We'll go back to the ex-president for the last word on, on Taylor Swift, of course, is is the former president a, a Swift? I wonder what it would sound like if the ex-president recited some Taylor Swift lyrics. I mean, that would be a pre- pretty amazing. Well, yeah. I'm not a Swifty. I never liked Swiss cheese. I never liked any of that stuff. I mean, she's very left-leaning, very left-leaning. But I have to say, I was told she had the single largest tour in uh, the North of North America and in Europe. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. So I give her credit there, but I don't give her credit for being so mean. She's very mean to me. She's very mean. And ha- you know what's really the worst thing? She registered over 150,000 people to vote at one concert. What kind of country are we living in where they're allowing people to register to vote? Everything's upside down and we should not allow. We have to stop the register of voters. By the way, most of these girls are 13 and they can't vote. So it's all illegal. It's all illegal voting by the 13-year-old girl. So it's sad. It's sad. I hope we take care of this. That's the great John D. Domenico, actor, writer, and impersonator. He's got 45 guest appearances with Howard Stern. Oh, John, where else can people... help this guy here. <laughs> John, where else can people find you? You, got you can find me pretty right much anywhere online. Yeah. Anytime you put in the Johnny D show, find me on YouTube. I've got a hundred thousand followers there. TikTok, I have six million followers there. Um, Instagram, not as many, eighteen thousand. But I'm pretty much everywhere, and I'm putting out content all the time. I do a live Trump press conference in full makeup every Friday on my YouTube channel, uh, ten a.m. to eleven a.m. on uh, Pacific time. Tune in and, you know, while we're streaming, ask me a question. I answer it in real time. And it's uh, just a lot of fun and improv. We have a great crew that helps put the show together. And yeah. thank you for having me on. This was great. I really appreciate this. This was this was, this was awesome. Uh, and editor Catherine Rubino with Above the Law and a podcast host of the Jabot and Thinking Like a Lawyer. Catherine, thanks for all of your articles and all of your insight today. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. All right. That's the legal grab bag segment here on Legal Face Off on WGN. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.